So tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections on seclusion. Uh, the Pali word uh, is wiweka. Uh, and when I use this word seclusion, I'm going to be using these other words kind of interchangeably. Seclusion, solitude, and also the quality of silence. It's such an important quality you know, in the way the, the, the Buddha talks about it. For example, in one passage, he talks about the heart or the mind of a practitioner. The heart of a practitioner whose taints are destroyed, right? Whose heart is free, you could say. That heart inclines towards seclusion, leans towards seclusion, tends towards seclusion, stays in seclusion, So hopefully tonight we can get a deeper sense of maybe what this is about and a, a practical sense of it that might support your practice in some way. And I think one way of beginning to understand it is, uh, I just want to refer back to the talk I gave on the refuges when I talked about, here we are, we, we're in this context together. We're in the context of being alone and being together. They're, they're mixed, they're intertwined. We have this, this place where we are alone. And yet we're doing this together. We're, we're a part of, you could say, this sangha together. And in that talk, I, I spoke about the refuge of sangha and expressed how practicing together can truly support our practice. We, we come together as this Dhamma family to practice with each other, to support each other. And probably by now on this retreat, you might have noticed we come together kind of as family. You know what I mean? Sometimes we can start a retreat. We feel so much kindness to the people around us. The retreat continues. There's sounds, there's smells, there's behaviors. And then we feel like, yeah, we're in family again. Right, it's both. I mean, here you are on a retreat with 90 people. So yeah, supportive and also challenging at times. I just want to acknowledge that. We, we collide into each other in these silences. And then that's our practice. And tonight it's going to be the other side of this, the, the quality of, of being alone on retreat. You know, a... a uh, these supports of seclusion, a, a solitude of a certain kind, because we're still together, and silence. And it's just like family, right? There's something so supportive about it, and you've probably noticed there can be times there can be something so challenging about seclusion, about aloneness. How do we navigate that? And, and, and the Buddha talks, he talks about different kinds of, of seclusion. A, a, a kind of a, a classic uh, terminology that he sometimes uses is two kinds of seclusion. Uh, kaya viveka, which is bodily seclusion. So you could say it's, it's that, that external seclusion. It's finding a place for these bodies that's more quiet and settled. You know, relatively more quiet and settled. That's kaya viveka. And then chitta viveka or chitta viveka, which is really the same thing, finding a place that's more settled for this heart and this mind, internally, externally. And I'm sure you, you already know how supportive silence and seclusion can be, or you wouldn't be here on this retreat. You wouldn't have signed up for six weeks or three months. And tonight, as I, I share with you these reflections, I do want to acknowledge that they, they might be more on the poetic side of things than the literal and the concrete. You know, for me, when I, when I read the Buddha's words, sometimes the Buddha I hear is a Buddha that is a poet, that's poetic. You know, many people, especially these days, when, these days when they read the Buddha, they find a scientific Buddha. 
which I always find interesting, or a psychological Buddha. You know, all kinds of different Buddhas that we hear and can be inspired by. Maybe more poetic at times this evening than literal and concrete. And in honor of that, to to begin with a a poem by the the great poet of the 19th century, uh, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. He says, Elected silence, sing to me and beat upon my whirled ear. Pipe me to pastures still and be the music that I care to hear. Elected silence. Here we are. We have elected to be in this space of silence. And can this silence, can it sing to you? Can you allow it to lead you towards freedom, towards peace. Can you allow seclusion to sing to you, to lead you towards freedom, towards peace? Solitude singing to you. Because there's a, a power and a potency to silence and seclusion. Right, that's maybe some of the draw. And maybe right now you can just taste a bit of that just in the quiet, the the power of silence right now. And not the silence that demands complete quiet, but even the silence that's here in the midst of the subtle sounds that are here. Have you ever noticed that where you can listen for silence even when there's sounds? For me, this is the powerful thing about being in nature is hearing the silence even when there's sounds. So it's that quality of listening for the silence that I really invite you into during this talk. Probably so much more important than anything I'm going to say. And what I do is I allow silence. Sometimes the way I play with this is is I allow it to frame experience to be the frame for experience in the same way that a picture frame I don't know if you've noticed this how a picture frame can accentuate a painting or a photograph I know some of you probably know there's a real skill to to pick the the perfect frame for that painting or that picture you have to have the eye to really find the frame that's going to support the picture in the, in the middle of the frame. For example, if you have a, a, a painting that, that uses the color orange in this poignant way, and you get a frame for that painting that just has the right amount of color of orange in it, maybe speckles of orange. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about a, a painting. You put that kind of frame on a painting that has orange in a poignant way, and then it pops out that color, right? This is, this is the way a frame can work, is it, it helps accentuate aspects. And for me, when I listen for silence, sometimes I can get the feeling of it, of it framing experience in a particular way. It frames it for me to bring out this quality of presence.
it gives a different feeling of what it is to be present. It's like it's in the field around me. And when I listen to the silence, it pops out that flavor. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. For example, I was just in the lower Karuna walking room before this talk. And I began the walking meditation in that room just with that listening to silence. And then in that silence, oh, there's the feeling of the body moving. It was like it it drew me in that way, accentuated being there with the movements of the body. So in this way, allowing silence to sing to you, allowing seclusion to sing to you, to sing you towards freedom, towards peace. And I know, you know, for for some people, it's, it's turning towards such qualities like solitude and seclusion and silence that that ignites the fire that fuels this journey on the spiritual path. Almost like a calling in some way. I remember for me, it was that way. You know, in high school, no, high school, high school equals challenge, difficulty. For me, high school sucked. It was difficult. And I remember trying to find the way through you know, the, the most readily available way through, right? Smoking pot, doing drugs. <laughs> Maybe this will work. It felt like it worked. It was good for a while. <laughs> kind of turned me on the meditation. Okay, it was highly problematic too. <laughs> In some serious, serious ways. I'm not going to get into those stories. <laughs> But you can imagine, like maybe some of these can relate. <laughs> so here I was really uh, hurting and confused. And I feel so grateful. It feels like the kind of the, the, uh, some kind of grace in my life. That somehow uh, there was something in my heart that knew that there was some kind of potential in silence and seclusion. And I remember feeling that draw. You know, I grew up in a Catholic family, an Irish Catholic family, so that was what I was mostly surrounded by. And it was during that time that I uh, was, yeah, quite younger, but I went to this monastery in, um, in Colorado, St. Benedict's Monastery. So some of you might know, for example, Father Thomas Keating, who is quite famous around centering prayer. And, and it was that, that silence and seclusion that really called to me. It was, even then I had quite difficulties with Catholicism. (laughs) It wasn't for me, but the silence and seclusion really drew my heart. It it spoke to me. And I felt lucky there was a a monk there, Father Theophane, Theophane the monk. And it's interesting, he had done, this is in the early years of IMS, a couple of three-month retreats here. I think there's a picture of him in the office with uh, the Dalai Lama, really a a striking uh, monastic it was good for me because I would get together with them, usually sometimes for hours every day when I was there. And all we talked about was Buddhist practice, <laughs> which is great. He's really so supportive and really such a wonderful being. But it was that. It was that, that silence and seclusion. And I think that's what led me to doing retreats and finally kind of in, into the whole Zen monastic thing. And maybe some of you here have had that similar pull or draw around seclusion or solitude. Maybe some of you in your heart, you know the, the potency and power of just the field of silence. How silence can frame our experience just in that little turn. Even right now when you hear the silence that's even there in the midst of sounds.
And I want to point out the obvious, that what we're doing here in this value of silence and seclusion and solitude is it's different than what dominant society teaches us. You know, here in this place we call the United States, I don't know, you know, I don't know about other cultures, but you know, dominant society really follows the value, at least as what one author uh, calls the extroverted ideal. You know, it's it's uh, what gets valued, and you could say the marketplace, even in our educational system, is this valuing uh, of the qualities of being talkative and outgoing and gregarious. And I want to be clear: there's nothing wrong with those. It's just like with anything: when something becomes dominant, there's other ways of being that get squashed. And it's important just to sing the praises of silence and solitude and seclusion because there's a power to it. Power, kind of like the the title of the autobiography of Rosa Parks. Just these two words, quiet strength. I love those two words, especially in the midst of thinking of Rosa Parks. She was... She's really the, 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 the woman that, that sparked off, you know, through this, this first major direct action protest, um, more of the momentum for the civil rights movement. You know, on that bus, when she was sitting there resisting the Alabama bus segregation law. And that title, Quiet Strength, embodied her qualities. Supposedly she was a very quiet person, but strong. As was said, that she had the courage of a lion. There's strength, there's power to what we're residing in here together. Can you allow it to sing to you, to lead you towards freedom, towards peace? The the poet Rilke uh, speaks, I think, to this power and this potency of seclusion and solitude and silence. And I'd like to share with you uh, just a a passage um, in in this passage. He's giving advice to a young poet. It's from his letter to a young poet. He says, you know, speaking to this young poet, When you notice that solitude is vast, you should be happy. For what would a solitude be that was not fast, vast? There is only one solitude, and it is vast, heavy, difficult to bear. And almost everyone has hours when they would gladly exchange it for any kind of sociability however trivial or cheap, for even the tiniest outward agreement with the first person who comes along, even the most unworthy. But perhaps these are the very hours during which solitude grows. For its growing is painful, as the growing of children and sad as the beginning of spring. But that must not confuse you. What is necessary, after all, is only this. Solitude, vast, inner solitude. To walk inside yourself and meet no one there for hours. That is what you must be able to attain. To be solitary as, were, as you were when you were a child, when the grown-ups walked around involved with matters that seemed large and important because they looked so busy and because you didn't understand a thing 
about what they were doing. And when you realize that their activities are shabby, that their vocations are petrified and no longer connected with life, why not then continue to look upon it all as a child would? As if you were looking at something unfamiliar out of the depths of your own world, from the vastness of your own solitude, which is itself work and status and vocation. Why should you want to give up a child's wise not understanding in exchange for defensiveness and scorn? Since not understanding is, after all, a way of being alone, where defensiveness and scorn are a participation in precisely what, by this, these means, you want to self-separate yourself from. That's the solitude to touch. That's the solitude that I'm allowing you to invite to sing to you towards freedom, towards peace, away from scorn, away from defensiveness. And I so appreciate what he points out about seclusion and solitude and silence. It can be difficult, difficult to bear in that image because its growing is painful as the growing of children, those pains that happen in the body when growth happens. Have you noticed that pain, that difficulty? Right, it's like in, in, in this space here we are together, in the silence. Yeah, together and alone. Have you noticed at times those states of mind that come crashing into your heart? The judgment, the self-hatred, the loneliness, the confusion, the abandonment. And there ain't no phone to run to, <laughs> to distract yourself. This is, this is the fertile ground of solitude and seclusion. To face it, to be with it. That's how growing happens. There's the fertile soil. That's one of the gifts that I think solitude sings to us, that silence sings to us. Okay, yeah, it's a crappy song at times. <laughs> but, but that's where the potential is for this retreat at times. And I want to, you know, just acknowledge it's hard to remember that. Remember, I remember starting a retreat at one time, and I remember sometimes at the beginning of the retreat, the way I psych myself up, up is just, you know, I'm going to be down for whatever arises. That's what it's about. Here I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the retreat. <laughs> I know it sounds completely ridiculous. So here I am, getting myself psyched up. I'm just going to be with whatever arises. You know, I'm going to be there for the, for the mind that's lost in, the thought, lost in thought and doubt and my knees aching. And it seems like in every, every retreat I do, Something comes up, despair, loneliness, self-hatred. And it's like, that wasn't on my list of things to kind of be down for. <laughs> it's like, damn it, it's not fitting. I wanted the other stuff, not this. You really allow it, though, to sing to you. 
using this practice so it leads you towards freedom and towards peace. Because there's a strength there, there's a power and potency in this field of seclusion and silence. And you see this, this value in, in Theravada Buddhism, in early Buddhism. One place it's most clearly seen is in this sutta called the Rhinoceros Sutta. And there's this refrain of this image of, of this encouragement to wander alone like a rhinoceros. You know, when I first started reading this, I was like, a rhinoceros? Some <laughs> of this? Yeah, that was, that was exactly the way I was feeling. And, uh, and then I slowed down and I remembered, I was uh, actually in Nepal after a long retreat, I'd gone to one of the national parks there. And I remember it was such a, a powerful moment of seeing a rhinoceros in the wild. Don't worry, I was in a safe distance from it. Alone. And, and the, to see that creature in the wild is a powerful experience. There's, there's, there's a kind of strength and power and stability and steadiness in such a being. I mean, it, it is deeply moving to see such a creature. And the quality of aloneness in that creature. There was a quiet there but just seeing how it was so interconnected, interdependent with the natural world. It was there in an, an entire world that was holding it. So I think this is important because what happens sometimes with our experiences of aloneness is it gets overcoupled with experiences of, of disconnection and isolation. This creature was the opposite of that connected and grounded, interwoven with this activity of living and interwoven with the earth herself. Ah, this is, maybe this is what the Buddha was referring to, the poetic Buddha at least, like a rhinoceros in the wild, that kind of strength. And you hear this in some of the stanzas in the sutta, it's a a striking... It's actually, uh, some people think, kind of one of the the older layers of of the discourses, an earlier layer of of them. Just to share a couple of them. Like this embodiment of strength, strength of the heart, one stanza. Unstartled like a lion at sounds. Unsnared like the wind in a net, unsmeared like a lotus in water, wander alone like a rhinoceros. I love it, the, 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 the image for me of, of the wind going through a net. It doesn't get entangled with the net, does it? It doesn't get ensnared. There it is, it's free to move through. It's not startled, such a heart, when there's the quality of seclusion in that way, just like a lion, it sounds. Uh, This is what it's like to wander alone. A heart that can wander alone, like a rhinoceros. Or the connection with the heart, where you find in another stanza. At the right time, consorting with the freedom that comes through goodwill, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, unobstructed by all the world, wander alone like a rhinoceros. It's filled with heart, it's not desolate. There's a different quality to this seclusion and solitude. Or another stanza that is, is honoring the external expression of this, the, the honoring monastics. And I feel so grateful that we have two monastics here. So, you know, thank you, Sister Hyan, and thank you, 
uh, Bhante Sukhachita for embodying the kind of outward expression of, of, of the heart of, of uh, seclusion and solitude. As it says, taking off the householder's marks like a coral tree that has shed its leaves, going forth in the robe, in the robe wander alone like a rhinoceros. So the strength of solitude, of seclusion, of, of silence. And as I was saying, yes, it can be challenging, the things that visit us in this space. And what I want to take some time with is just to, to clarify something, as I mentioned before, that gets that gets. Uh, confused with aloneness, the power of aloneness. And that is loneliness. And I want to point out this quality of seclusion, of solitude, of silence, is different than the feeling of loneliness. They're very different things. It's really quite interesting. You know, the when they've, uh, there's been a lot of studies done on both solitude or, or uh, solitary life and loneliness. And one thing about loneliness that's important to remember is that living alone and being alone are not strong correlations with loneliness, which I, I find quite striking. And so from this, I think it's safe to say that, that they're not the primary cause for the arising of loneliness. What is strongly correlated with loneliness? Feelings of isolation, of disconnection, of alienation. It's a, it's a different realm, but, but it's true. A loneliness can, uh, being here, sometimes what starts to get, get um, ignited, that starts to arise, is a quality of loneliness. There is qualities of, of isolation and disconnection that happen, and then that leads into loneliness. And, you know, as I was mentioning before, you know, those challenges during high school, they were filled with feelings of feeling alienated, of not belonging. I think that was my main struggle of, of I, I don't belong, I, I feel so alienated from others. And it really thrust me into these dynamics of isolating myself, of isolation and disconnection. And that was just the, the habit of this heart. It was like... The, I'm going to go where there's nobody around because it's too painful to be around people. And it was really interesting to see that it was, it was uh, retreats and meditation that, that started to provide this vehicle to start to navigate these feelings in kind of a strange way, which I just want to acknowledge because I think one of the pulls towards retreat and meditation was a pull towards isolation and disconnection. It's like, just as our, our minds, our, our, our bodies can want to reenact the things that don't work for us. You ever notice that? Not again, man. I'm going to try this again. Wow, it doesn't work. I think I'm going to try it again. Wow, it doesn't work. I think I'm going to try it one more time. <laughs> I guess I'm not the only one that has an art and mind like that. And I think that the amazing power of retreat, it's like, oh, here I am following this kind of, this, this dynamic of reenactment, of reenacting it, and, and yet it was a space to renegotiate disconnection and isolation. Ah, oh, here is a space of solitude where I can begin to reconnect with my experience. That's what we're doing, right? Just reconnecting with the breath, the feeling of the body. Noticing, coming close to these states of mind and heart that are arising, the wholesome ones, the difficult ones, having those skills of navigating them, like Guy was talking about last night. Uh, This is what allows, for at least for me, I noticed what started to arise, this ability to first begin just to relate to myself and connect to myself. Much easier just to make a couple 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 simple sentences about it. It was difficult. It was challenging. I don't want to 
So it was like an easy thing, like I went there and then everything was great. <laughs> it is challenging and difficult. It takes a softening of the heart. It takes this quality of presence that we're cultivating here together. And then it was like I started to land being alone rather than merely being lonely. You know, it's interesting. There's been a uh, number of studies done on alone time. I just want to mention one where uh, it was found that among adults where there's comfort in spending time alone, that is correlated with lower sadness and fewer negative physical symptoms and usually a higher life satisfaction. There's a potential in the seclusion and silence and solitude. Can you allow silence to sing to you, solitude to sing to you? Can you allow it to lead you towards freedom, towards ease? For me, I I really do have this feeling that it has led me in this direction of a towards a deeper sense of connection and out of these dynamics of alienation and isolation and disconnection. A, a deeper sense of connection that's difficult to put words to, that I think influences, has the potential to influence our connections with, with others and also down to the simple things like our breath or a sound or a sensation. I remember hearing a story that, that fits so well with this. This is a, a story from a, a practitioner I knew from my Zen days. He had practiced with the Zen master I practiced with, you know, a couple decades before I got into the scene. And he told me the story about uh, his interactions with the Zen master I practiced with. He, um, this practitioner is, he's a very warm person, very talkative and outgoing and gregarious. And like, he's just right there when he meets you. And he said when he first started practicing, when he came to the Zen master that we both practiced with, he'd always be like, hi, Roshi, it's so good to see you. You know, like this really warm hellos. I loved his hellos. And the Zen master was just like, no response. (laughs) Each time. It totally pissed him off. Right? He's so angry, you know? And the stories he said started coming, you know? He's being mean to me. You know, he's a Zen master. He should be kind. That's what Buddhism's all about. Look at him. He's being such a jerk each time I come here to practice. Maybe you can relate to this irritation. And isn't it irritating when people don't act like you want them to? <laughs> don't say the things that you want them to say don't have the views that you want them to have. It's a drag. Right? If only they could change. Do you know that one? It's called dukkha. <laughs> right? But it really hooks us. So this is what his mind was going through. You know, This would be the interactions he'd be having with his Zen master. And then through years of Zen practice, and I just want to point out, Zen practice is a little bit different than Vipassana, at least Rinzai Zen that I practiced in. Like, there's no teachings around this stuff. It's just like, this is what happens. You struggle through it, and maybe you know, the heart opens. And so after a few years of practice, <laughs> it's a little better than that. I mean... Of course, I still have, there's a, there's a part of my heart that's very close to Zen practice. And he said after years, he started to feel something really different. Where he could feel, really, we could say in this context, the seclusion, the solitude, and the silence. And practicing with the Zen master, he noticed, oh, this is the teaching. Oh, there's a deeper way to connect. Oh, he's not going to buy into my societal way of connecting. He's not interested in that. He's leading me to someplace deeper. And once he started to get a sense of that, it was like this whole other dimension of his practice opening. Can you allow silence to sing to you? 
seclusion to sing to you? Can you allow it to lead you towards freedom, towards peace in this way? To a deeper sense of connection, not just a societal one. Just a caveat to that. Just, I don't want to disparage Zen too much. For example, I have a Zen friend who um, I give him a hard time because in his tradition, there's not a lot of instruction and he gives me a hard time because we give so much instruction. <laughs> I think that's always the, their critique. Is in, in Zen, they don't talk enough. In Vipassana, they talk way too much. <laughs> Maybe there's something true about it. So how can you allow silence and seclusion to sing to you? And I've given you one. It's just that simple thing, even right now. Can you hear the silence that's here right now? Can you listen to it? Open to it. Allow it to frame experience right now, to frame it in a way that it accentuates a quality of presence pops out that color of the painting. So it's there, right there for you, readily available. And I think there's other ways we can allow it to sing to us. The pleasure of it, especially kaya weweka, the pleasure of being in this field of silence together, relative silence. Yeah, I know what your mind is thinking. You know, you're going to send me a note. It's not that quiet, that person next to me. (laughs) Can you find the silence in the midst of the sounds? As the, the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, drinking the nourishment, the flavor of seclusion and calm. That's there, one is freed from the unwholesome, devoid of distress, refreshed with the nourishment of rapture in the Dhamma. And you drink in the nourishment of the the silence and the solitude. Sometimes I'll just go for a walk in the woods, listening for the silence. It can feel so nourishing. It brings me into the Dhamma. Listening for that. And not only savoring kaya viveka, but chitta viveka. Seclusion of the heart, seclusion of the mind. Maybe beginning just on a simple level. Have you noticed those moments when the mind is secluded from thoughts? There's no thoughts in the mind. It could be even a half a second between the thoughts. It's something that you can do right now. Can you notice that there's a thought? And there's a gap. Listening to the gap. Hearing the the seclusion of the mind. The silence of the mind. It's right there, isn't it? Isn't that a trip? It's right there. Maybe just a half a second, a quarter of a second. There it is, between the thoughts. What does the gap feel like? What's there? It even gives a different sense sometimes of thinking. Ah, Thoughts, what's the big deal? They're They're just coming and going through the silence. Why? Why should they bother you? 
like the sound of a car on the road out there on Pleasant Street as it breaks through the silence. Is it really that big of a deal? It's just a sound. Problem I find is the only problem is I identify so much with the thoughts. I think they're I think they're mine. I don't think the car is mine, so I don't make a big deal out of it. I don't take it that personally. I'm not driving that car. But somehow it feels like we're driving the car of the thoughts, doesn't it? Sometimes it gets so painful. Noticing the gaps. Or on a deeper level, or another, not a deeper level, but another aspect, kind of a more traditional way of understanding citta, viveka, where the mind is secluded from the hindrances. Even if it's a moment, like the snap of fingers. We've talked about this, you know, even in the description of the hindrances. You know, a practitioner knows when, when there is sensual desire in me and also knows, oh, when there is no sensual desire in me. Oh, here it is. There's a gap. Oh, the mind is secluded from a moment from that hindrance or maybe a moment from all the hindrances. To savor that, to taste it. Or there might be a presence of something, a full presence of metta, of loving kindness or of compassion. That's a moment of this citta viveka. There's even another term that's sometimes used, citta vimutti. The mind or the heart that's freed. And sometimes this phrase is, is understood as a temporary freedom. There it is. Vimuti, oh, freedom right here in this moment. So important to notice those moments again and again and again. That's our practice. That's the practice of savoring seclusion. It's the practice of allowing silence to sing to you so it can lead you towards freedom, towards peace. And having this frame is so important because I think this is so much of the understanding of the the path in Theravada. It's a process of shedding, of dropping away, not of gaining. And so often, I know I can do this with, with spiritual practice, I'm going to get something. It's more going to, to, to shed something, to let go. The Thai forest monastic Ajahn Brahmahamso, he, he puts it well. I love the way he, he, he words things. He says, the true purpose of practicing Buddhism is to let go of everything, not to get more things like attainments to show off to your friends. When we let go of something, really let go, then it disappears. We lose, we lose it. All successful meditators are losers. They lose their attachments. Enlightened ones lose everything. They truly are the biggest loser. (laughs) That's practice, right? You're here to become the biggest loser. (laughs) I find it relieving to tell you the truth. And then, again, to come back with what I began with around this other, for me, poignant flavor of citta viveka or citta viveka. Not the the ultimate citta viveka, but but also something that can be so interesting. And I remember the first time contacting this, I was on a backpacking retreat with my partner. And, you know, when we go on these backpacking times, we have times of sitting in silence and... and, uh, and for me, there's something about finding the silence in the natural world. Even when there's all kinds of sounds, there's like a silence there. Do you know what I'm talking about? That you touch. There it is, like in the midst of those sounds. And I remember having more and more of that experience when we were just having time out there also to be on retreat. And then 
really touching that silence that wasn't dependent upon the absence of sounds. It's like, oh, there it is. It's right there. It doesn't matter if there's a sound or not. And touching that silence, even when there's thoughts, oh, it doesn't matter if there's thoughts coming and going. Oh, there it is. There's the silence. Ah, that's chitta viveka. That's seclusion of the heart. Ah, oh, the the mind that's not disturbed, that isn't troubled, that rests in silence. It gave a whole different feeling to what it is to be present. Oh, there's the silence that holds all of experience. Ah, there's the silence that's not touched by dukkha. And for me, those of you who are familiar with this kind of nature of awareness or nature of mind approaches to practice, it's like, oh, that's my gateway into that flavor of awareness. Ah, that, that, that awareness that isn't touched by dukkha. Ah, there in the silence. Just following the silence, allowing experience to be framed by that silence and resting there. And I think that's the most powerful is to find that silence in the midst of whatever is going on, even in the midst of difficulty. Just like like the poet I- I- Izumi uh, Shikibu, this was really the, the great uh, 10th century uh, Japanese poet. She wrote this poem that I think is using moonlight in the way that, that I'm talking about silence, this poetic description. She says, although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. Can you listen to the silence even though the wind blows terribly here? Can you allow seclusion and solitude to sing to you as it leaks through the roof planks of this ruined house? To allow it to lead you towards freedom, towards peace. A freedom and peace for the benefit of all beings. Let's just sit for a couple moments here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.